Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. The West Coast here has been getting hit with quite a few snowstorms lining up through the rest of the end of February. Even though we do get a lot of snow, it's definitely a, quite a bit of a shock how many times we've been able to accumulate a bit of snow on the ground, considering that we ended up having the ninth largest snowfall in Vancouver's history, followed up consecutively by multiple snow days back to back to back, and considering that it's not getting any warmer, I mean, yeah, it is winter, that's definitely something to be expected, but how frequently this has been happening, and how frequently you've been able to see quite a bit of white and gray lining out in the streets, and as well as the forests of green, it's a little surprising to say the least, and uh, I mean, in terms of other surprising things, if I sound a little under the weather, it's just considering that I ended up leaving one of my windows open during the night of one of these cold winter evenings, and so that ended up giving me not the best uh, start to my day, so nursing myself back up to the rest of it, and hopefully I'll be able to keep the coughing down to a minimum, and we'll just see how it goes. So before we do get into the awards season version of things, a couple of things that happened over the past couple of weeks, we ended up getting another consecutive marker for the decline of Japanese home video sales. It is now marked the 17th consecutive year as the Japanese home video market has been in decline consistently through home video releases. In 2022 in particular, it was down by 16.1%. And to be honest, the only reason why this has been coming up as a more popular topic recently is that there have been a number of videos and articles and things that have been releasing about the quote-unquote success or lack thereof of Chainsaw Man's adaptation. Everybody was saying that considering how small the numbers were in comparison to a lot of the other shows that have been popping up over the course of years, Bochi the Rock, Licorice Recoil, to name a few, it's... Numbers are so far below the average in terms of what everybody else is thinking. A lot of people were essentially jumping out of the woodwork just to go through and say, like, really, this was going to be the most hyped and anticipated show of 2022. This is really the thing that everybody was going to say is going to change the industry. And, well, it's at least nice to be contrarian. It's at least nice to be right. And neither of those things are true. At least through the majority of the fact that leading into at least talking about Chainsaw Man, the majority of the sales that ended up going through MAPPA's website specifically wasn't included inside of the overall release sales for whatever reason, so can't necessarily go through there. But considering how low the Japanese home video sales has been going over the past more than decade, nearly two, it's definitely showing the progression of how the majority of shows are either getting produced and getting a committee as well as the funds together, considering that back in 2019, video content revenue was able to equal home video sales for the first time, and ever since 2020, digital video content has been the one that has been taking in the majority of profits as well as capital leading in through the majority of productions into the future. So, yes... Video sales are important for more niche things, especially when it comes to character designs, merchandise, how exactly that's going to be pushing the sale of any original content, or in this case, pushing the original sale of adapted content. All those things need to be taken into account, but at, le at least at this point in time, there's still going to be a niche anime audience inside of Japan that is going to consistently pay for the things that they enjoy, but considering how worldwide of a phenomenon that anime is becoming in terms of how much content is being created for audiences outside of the country, this is definitely going to be a trend that we're probably going to be seeing leading into the future. Now, Naoki Urasawa, his work is definitely something that I need to start going into a bit more. I've only read the first four volumes of 20th Century Boys. I have watched all of Monster, and considering that that is now on Netflix, I really believe that everybody should have the opportunity to go and enjoy it. Unfortunately, it seems that the English dub is not on there. At least one of my buddies told me that, so I'm really curious, because that was 
easily like a really good show to sit back and let the dub itself do the majority of the heavy lifting, considering how soft and slow and eerie the majority of the storytelling inside of that show is. But now another one of his works leading into that has been in the works for quite a number of years. It got delayed in some point. Some people thought it was canceled. Like it was just being thrown around from studio to studio. But finally, it does seem that we are going to be getting a legitimate release date for near the end of this year for Pluto. And so Pluto is going to be going through with Tezuka Productions as well as being animated by Studio M2. And so Urasawa is hoping that now more than ever, Osamu Tezuka... Osamu Tezaki's message is going to reach the world. And so we're really curious to see how this is going to go. I haven't heard necessarily anything about it. The only times consistently that I've heard this brought up is how it's either stuck in limbo or there are production issues and that we never knew if we were ever going to even see it on the main stage at all. It is a philosophy of Tezuka's and does not merely convey a message of anti-war, but it also reminds us that there is suffering on both sides and that the only remaining answer is peace. And so at least we know that by the end of the year, this will be coming out on Netflix and we're finally going to have the opportunity to see this work come to life. And a little bit more of a personal note leading through here, because um, Canada's Teletoon is going to be rebranding as Cartoon Network from March 27th onwards. On top of everything else, the Cartoon Network channel leading inside of the States is going to be rebranded as Boomerang. I mean, in this case, Teletoon has been a huge part of my life growing up, and I would imagine for many kids inside of Canada as well. This ended up launching on October 1997, and for a lot of localized and licensed shows, this was the first place that I was able to see some anime being brought over to the Western Shores. This ended up having Bakugan, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh!, Yokai Watch, Dragon Ball Z, Cardcaptor Sakura, Beyblade Burst, just all of these opportunities for me to at least get a glimpse into seeing, even though they were mostly just used to sell toys, what that kind of animation and what that kind of style is able to bring over inside the media of animation. So Chorus Entertainment is going to be slating the new Cartoon Network channel with a couple of old flagship shows and classic Teletoon programming. Considering that Boomerang itself is going to be specializing in classical animation series as well as other retro content. And considering that Chorus already introduced Teletoon Plus as a multi-platform streaming service for most of the kids starting from September of last year, the company is at least going to be keeping the name of that platform whenever they're going to be doing any kind of international or local streaming. So. It's really interesting to see how that's going to be rebranded and going to be refocused on a new entire generation leading into the future, but I guess considering how much of it was a part of my childhood, I guess I wanted to at least reach out and give it its dues. Now, I know that I was also thinking of going to see Michael B. Jordan's new appearance inside of Creed 3, but considering now that this is going to be his directorial debut and the more and more interviews that come out about him and his process behind the movie... The more and more it gets me excited, specifically considering that he's going to be putting as much anime flourish as he can, at least to an acceptable degree. But there's so much inspiration that he's been saying that he decided to bring this into his directorial debut. He's talking about boxing-themed anime like Hajime no Ippo and Megalobox. And in terms of the action and the choreography, he's really interested in trying to bring a little bit of flair similar to Naruto, My Hero Academia, and Dragon Ball Z. I'm really curious to see how these influences are going to be translating into film, considering that it's always really awkward and just put out there way too much whenever some live-action productions try to emulate anime, but if you can get 
anything revolving around the correct use in music, the tempo of the fights, the cut-ins, the pull-outs, and how well the impact of each punch is going to be thrown. I'm really curious to see, especially considering how this is going to be his third time revising his character inside of a boxing film, how that's going to translate, especially with how many individual references that he's going to be able to slip in between every other show that he is hoping to not only emulate, but inspire and take after as well. So considering we are in the middle of awards season, and to be fair, in the middle of awards is kind of redundant because it definitely seems like, besides the SAG Awards, the last major piece that people are essentially waiting for to pop up is going to be the Oscars. And like I've said before many a times, I just... I do not care for the Oscars, even though they've been able to get me seeing the majority of animated films that they've decided to go through and nominate towards the end of the year. Because even though I don't necessarily care about the winner, considering how easily influenced it is throughout the majority of categories leading to any part of this award ceremony, if you can even call it that, but at the very least it can do is get me interested to kind of see what films were able to go and sneak in and why they were able to go through, and hopefully I see that they're able to go in on their own merits besides the fact that they were pushed incredibly hard by an advertising committee trying to at least get the opportunity to advertise their film and give it the quite redundant title Oscar-nominated film, which thankfully, the films that they ended up nominating this year, there was not a single bad or even average film. Like, every single one of these animated features that are going to be presented, I don't believe all of them deserve to win, but at the very least, they were all engaging, all charming, and all entertaining in their own ways to go through and have the opportunity to shine on the main stage. So at the very least, I would have so at the very least, all of these deserve to be here, some more than others, but I do believe that they all have the opportunity to go through and shine on their own merits. So to begin, I'm probably just going to go in ascending order based on the ones that I thought were, I mean, quote-unquote weakest doesn't necessarily put it in the right way, but the ones, I'll at least be able to enjoy these films more and more as I continue to go on and talk about them, considering that... There is quite a bit of film to go through, not only in anime, but just animation in general. And so I'm really glad to see that through the majority of these productions, we're seeing more and more pieces be advancing their field and their medium as a whole. And so I'm really glad to see that through the majority of this stuff, regardless of the trends and the tropes that have been evolving through at least the 2020s, there are quite a bit of strengths to each of these individual projects. So at least I can cover them here. So, even though there's quite a bit of Canadian spark in this nomination, I would say Turning Red is definitely a film that hits that great piece of nostalgia at least back in the middle 2000s for when I was going through, although this is going through the lens of an Asian-Canadian growing up in early Toronto. In terms of what elementary school was like, the knickknacks, the boy bands, everything inside of that culture and that time is so immortalized in this film so well on top of being able to I can't necessarily say accurate on top of the fact being unnecessarily accurate because I have absolutely no idea about the early culture in terms of leaning into Toronto Chinese relations for the relationship with Chinatown inside of Toronto but at the very least I can say that there's so much of this to anybody that they would be able to find 
but at the very least there is something for everybody to recognize and everybody to enjoy regardless of the age and regardless of the generation considering that it is quite a phenomenal snapshot into mid-2000s Toronto, especially considering the fact that we ended up calling the Rogers Centre what it currently is now for the Toronto Blue Jays, the Sky Dome. Just a tiny little insert, something that wasn't necessarily on screen for too long, but the fact that they were able to go all the way back and just say, hey, guess what? Sky Dome's still here, Sky Dome's still relevant, and even though it doesn't share the same name, at least Toronto has been able to go through and have the opportunity to try and increase the awareness of anybody who is curious about that specific landmark. On top of the fact that there are just so many things where it's just kind of like, oh yeah, no, there's the CN Tower. There's the CN Tower again. There's the CN Tower again. There's the CN Tower again. There were just quite a few pieces to at least where it's, look, we get it. There's an establishing shot. We know we're in Toronto. Thank you very much. This isn't the Sky Deal. This isn't Seattle. We can just press on and now, like, stop talking about the landmarks and the rest of it and at least talk about the quality of the movie. The movie itself looks great. All of the characters, you understand this tight-knit friendship, and you understand that these girls would literally do anything for each other. You really do feel not only the stress and cultural significance of what essentially she has to go through in terms of living with her family, with this quote-unquote curse, living with something that is essentially big and bright and red and stressful, and just quite a bit, considering that... I do kind of find it tragic that the first things I heard about Turning Red when it ended up coming out was just the controversy of it even trying to attempt to normalize periods and essentially what women have to go through, especially at such a young age. And, like, the, like seriously, that's the biggest complaint that you have about this movie. And, I mean, good for you, because if you weren't so aimlessly spewing negativity and hate, then I wouldn't have found the opportunity to at least see why a lot of people were able to enjoy the show. I do appreciate how all does seem natural to the point where it's, of course, like, it would be incredibly relatable to any girl, like, leading into the rest of us, and I'm really glad to see that this kind of represent, not necessarily representation, but at least acceptance of what this has to be and what they would have to go through at a specifically stressful time in their lives, and I'm really glad to see that that's going to be explored even more in film. And outside of that, the way that they're able to brew the familial conflict and seeing how it is the major conflict, even though there's still a lot of love and a lot of joy and a lot of care that this family feels towards each other, but knowing the stress that the majority of this curse leads upon them is completely understandable into how this kind of conflict is going to be not only resolved, but in terms of how everybody is going to learn to grow as people inside of a more healthy coping mechanism, as well as being able to lean on each other more. So at the end, I'm really glad to see the recognition that this film was able to go through. I was really glad to see how they were able to instill us in that kind of time on top of everything else that everybody was going for. And I'm really hoping that we still get uh, more Canadian media that ends up getting based in Canada and not have it be like a Vancouver scenario where it's a city that can play anything where it's like, nope, this is specifically Toronto or this is specifically Vancouver. This is specifically Edmonton, specifically St. John's. Oh man, I would love some seaside towns, especially on the East Coast. Oh, one can only dream. So the most recent one that I ended up watching close to this list is always is also just the one that I'm the most conflicted about, and that's Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. Because it's stop motion. The main, the majority of the main characters inside of this film are all stop motion, but it only takes up about a third of the screen. And everything else is portrayed in the real world, which as a technical feat is 
ridiculously impressive, considering how well they were able to meld Marcel and his family inside of this world that is completely and utterly real. There is no prop, or there is barely any props. Everything that he almost involves himself with or touches is something that is a part of our world specifically. And it's just, whenever, let's just say whenever half of the, more than half of the movie is revolving around um, human characters in a human setting, but in a real world, something that is outside the medium of animation. And not necessarily outside of it, but how the medium of animation interacts with the real world itself. You saw a couple of pieces of that inside of, say, like Bochi the Rock, where they would either cut to either live action stuff or put them in the middle of an environment that was actually in the real world instead of generated. So whenever, considering the majority of this film is I mean, all, like, everything inside of this film is in the real world, but the majority of the environments that Marcel and his family interacts with, very briefly does it become part of a stop-motion uh, stop piece, and they actually go through and interact. I know I'm not talking too much about the quality of the film, because the film is good. Just being able to enjoy and recognize the small things in life and understanding that change is scary, but it is inevitable and something that you have to go forward into and just try to be fearless and being somebody that'll be able to go through and adapt to the many ways that the world is going to change and throw things at you. I did also, it was also a really interesting thing to see. It didn't necessarily comment on the idea of virality, but it also definitely went through like influencers or people trying to go through and get a piece of the ever evolving like popular content pie was just kind of like, oh yeah, no, these people are just, yeah, I, I just don't like this. They're, they're an audience. They're not a community. It's just a group of people. And they don't, they're not really helping anybody. They're just looking for something themselves. And it's just kind of like, yep, no, that, that definitely hits something. Uh, the most similar vibe that this film was able to give me would probably be The Borrowers or the animated film The Secret World of Arietti. Considering the scale and how a smaller creature would adapt to live inside of a human home, the conflict and how the pacing of the movie does go, it does get you to just slow down figure out how a creature of this size would be able to navigate and live inside of a world that is mostly occupied by us. Not only us, but pets, through animals, through insects, and how their coexistence with that kind of environment leads them to the kind of life that they live. And I really did find all that interesting, considering that I do believe that, like, Arietti is one of, like, my secret favorite Ghibli films, but it's still does a really good job grounding you inside of that scale and that point of view for the rest of the characters. So, honestly, everything about this film is just a technical and visual marvel. The only thing that keeps nagging me at the back of my head, like, the only negative thing I can say about this film, or the only two negative things I can say, is that sometimes it does slow down to a degree that it's a little shaky to keep moving forward, but then also it's t it, it deserves to be nominated somewhere. It deserves to be put inside of a category either through, unfortunately, mostly drama, maybe fantasy, but for a film where it is stop motion for its main character, it's just that everything else is just real life. And I don't know how much... It's, it's just really tough, considering that the majority of the time, I mean all the time that Marcel and his family are on screen, that's all stop motion. That's That I can understand. But it's just, 
when you compare this to something that, say, Studio Leica does with Kubo and the Two Strings, or in this case with what Guillermo del Toro was able to do with Pinocchio, it's just so... They're all stop-motion in their own right. The problem, whenever I think about this and you're nominating it next to the rest of this, is that they still... You know, I think I'll just leave it at this. I... As, as the more and more I think about it, the more and more accepting I become of it being, it just still is going to take me a while to have the opportunity to just reel into the fact that, yes, this is stop motion, and the, and the majority of the main characters here are stop motion, and that is going to be where the majority of the technical piece comes into play whenever you're deciding to do that kind of a production. So since that was the most important part and that the characters involve themselves and interact with the world around them inside of that kind of medium, merging the two together, I still do believe that the majority of the medium is real, and the minority of the things that are happening is is stop-motion and in-turn animation. It's just very tough to come around. It, I would say it's still worth your time. Go figure it out for yourself if, you, if you're actually curious to see like how much of this you would believe to be, like, is this more of drama, or is this more animation, or is it fine for both of it to coexist in its own place? I don't know. I still do believe that Marsh... <laughs> this is going to be interesting. Marcel the Shell with Shoes On. It's always a tongue twister. I do believe that it is worthy of a nomination inside of this category, even though it will still take me a little bit of time to accept that, but it's still worth your time, and I do think it's a good watch if you're looking for something that kind of takes you on the smaller things in life and how to enjoy them. So probably the biggest surprise to me since the first time I had ever seen this movie mentioned was basically on the nomination list, and that, in this case, is The Sea Beast, which I still have no idea where the bloody production company is because they just keep saying Netflix animation, which just means, okay, so Netflix... I, I highly doubt that it is a company where it's just called Netflix Animations, especially with how Netflix is basically just completely canning the majority of the productions and sequels and everything else that they're related to. So the fact that this movie's coming out now as quote-unquote Netflix Animation with not giving any of the production names or the people involved or the companies involved like any, any due process or any like recognition, if, they, if another film comes out this year underneath the umbrella Netflix animations, I really hope that that means that they finally were able to go through and just say, hey, no, this is our in-house animation stuff, and this is, like, not us outsourcing to, like, three or four different animation studios and just, like, calling everybody else underneath our umbrella that, which does make it a little simpler, but I do think that especially with how the animation medium and how saturated it is, and, like, people do deserve to be recognized for their work. And so, honestly, same deal. When it comes to the production, that's the only negative thing I can say about it because this movie was definitely a surprise gem, to say the least. It was, it, it is a pirate movie through and through, and it has been so long since I've had the opportunity to go through and have that kind of swashbuckling environment and adventure and feel to any kind of this since the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. It is so fun, so dynamic, so chaotic. Uh, well, I, I mean, I guess on top of that, uh, Sinbad Legend of the Seven Seas, that's also a really good animated film. It's still incredibly charming. The characters themselves definitely seem a little too overpowered to deal with the things that they do, especially with how they're able to maneuver around the ships. But to be fair, considering the majority of these characters have been living on boats for the majority of their lives and it's been decades for most, 
the way that they're able to navigate the ships as if they're just swinging on vines and they're even just a small part of it of a large bigger whole it's definitely nice to see that kind of dynamic movement and that instruction and that flow whenever you see anybody moving around the ship combating whatever threat that may face them the duo in this film is definitely nice and charming they do a good dichotomy Maisie and Jacob have a really good back-and-forth duo whenever they go along with each other and seeing how they're able to expand each other's worldview as well as teach them things that they wouldn't have been able to go from another perspective. It was all very nice. <laughs> the, the, the sea beast in question, though, it's so toothless, and not toothless as in like a neg negative term. It's definitely giving me a lot of vibes from How to Train Your Dragon, especially with how it interacts with a smaller creature, in this case, a much smaller creature, themselves and yeah it was seeing the way the majority of the crew bounces off each other as well as the adventures that they get to go on it's a little shorter than i would have expected on top of the fact that the movie just kind of goes and ends incredibly quickly where it just you see conflict the final conflict of the film go from part a to part b to part c incredibly quickly and then everything gets resolved which to be fair, it's kind of nice because the, the message, the political system, the way that the majority of the people actually would have to live and how they would have to change underneath such a grand gesture, the way the film... It, like, it's a small, quick... It is a large, quick gesture, but it is something that would fundamentally alter the entire world and the people that would live in it. But then it's just kind of like, and then everybody lived happily ever after, which thankfully just kind of just lets it off to the point where you don't necessarily have to think about it too much. It's a really nice hour and a half long, like really quick, enjoyable sailor shanty romp. And if that's the kind of thing that you've been missing for the past couple of years, I would definitely recommend The Sea Beast. Although, if you were asking me to give it a rating, when I was beginning the film, I basically noticed that, okay, so we're pirates, we're, sh we're sailing on the seven seas. If there is no more than two sea shanties inside of this if there aren't more than two sea shanties inside of this movie, it's just going to get a 1 in 10. And guess what? There was only one sea shanty inside of the entire movie. So, unfortunately, it gets a 1 out of 10. So, it's probably my least favorite movie in the entire list just for that reason alone. So, that's really unfortunate. But you know what? You got to do what you got to do. Now, I know that you've heard that there have been quite a few Pinocchio films to come out in 2022. It's just been so hilarious to see all three of these films covers such a wide spectrum of not only quality and emotion, but just production as well as the cast and the overall experience and the interactive and the perspective from all of these as well. Because of all the properties to come out over the past couple of decades, if you told me that Pinocchio was going to be getting three different films of three varying qualities, that would probably be the last one I would have expected. So in this case, we ended up getting Pinocchio, A True Story, which is going to be on the far end of the spectrum in terms of how piss poor it was compared to all of its predecessors. And at least the very, and at the very least, what you can get out of this film is just something where you would have to go through, drink something, smoke something, take anything to try and like add to the experience because it is just so fucking awful in terms of the animation, the storytelling, the voice acting, just Everything involved in this production was just so unfortunate in how it ended up playing out, but at the very least, it was a bad kind of funny, and something that you could actually laugh at and feel something towards. The one that, unfortunately, I didn't get to watch, 
which is understandable because I don't think I've seen a single live-action Disney movie yet, is uh, Disney's Pinocchio. And there is just nothing positive that anybody can say about this movie. The Like, the best I've heard about it is that it was fine to mediocre. And then the majority of the people that end up going through where it's just kind of like, okay, well, it's another live-action Disney feature, so sure, there's going to be a couple of pieces how it's going to get involved, but wow, is this just so piss poor and soulless and absolutely nothing and an absolute nothing of a film just they've got tom hanks they've got a big actor it's attached to disney it's attached to one of their old animations and that's basically the only thing that you could say about it because everything else seeing like because apparently the animation work was just kind of a little bit shoddy everything that anybody had to say about it was either just meh to negative it's definitely one of those soulless works where they know it's just off of a checklist because they're going through every single one of their classic Renaissance films and all of them will be transitioned to live action at some point in time, but it's probably just the most insulting thing that you could do to a property and, and that's just make a soulless, nothing cash grab of film. So the fact that this movie was able to elicit nothing out of so many people is probably just the worst crime that you could probably commit. Thankfully... The Pinocchio that did get nominated for an Oscar this year is going to Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which is a stop-motion bit which, yes, it's done by Netflix Animation, but this is the reason why I want to go through and look at the productions, because you mostly can take this towards Shadow Machine and the Jim Henson Company, because it's their productions and it's their work and it's their crew that did the vast majority of the work on this, where all Netflix Animation is mostly doing is handling the distribution. Pinocchio itself... If there was ever a thing that I would not have on my Pinocchio bingo card, it would probably be Pinocchio becoming a part of the uh, Italian Nazi regime and trying to become a super soldier. And it's like, huh, this is, um, well, this is definitely not the way I would have expected it to go, but honestly, just, it worked out. There is so much heart and effort and just hope and joy put into this film in the face of something that is so heartless and destructive and soul-crushing as war and what it takes away from people and what it drives people to do it's it was such a weird thing considering it was almost like horror-ish in the beginning of the film in the sense that you have this wooden boy with the soul and naivete and the absolute joy of an of a new child like perfectly voiced by david bradley he put a really good spin onto this character as being just a nice, kind, believable boy, but the way that Pinocchio comes to life and interacts with the world around him as everybody shuns, disgraces, calls him a spawn of the devil, and all Pinocchio can do in that face is just kind of like, no, that's not me, I'm a real boy, and <laughs> just his relentless, childish hope and optimism put into contrast by the complete and utter despair apathy and hopelessness of the scenario that he's been put into is just so it's just so comedic in that sense that you, you can't help but just laugh and have a good time with it regardless of the horrifically dark scenarios that all of our characters get put into i'm really glad to see that ewan mcgregor like is still like moving on and doing quite a bit of good work to this day he was a phenomenal piece as jiminy cricket or i can't remember just the cockroach or just <laughs> how essentially that goes through Sebastian J. Cricket, that's it. And what his narration is able to do to push the story forward, I really did enjoy him, and if you were ever going to have anybody to do a nomination...
And if you were going to have anybody to do a narration of that point, you can definitely go really well with you, uh, Mr. McGregor. All of the animation and the environments and what this production was able to accomplish inside of this story was just honestly nothing short of phenomenal. It looks gorgeous, whether it's through rain, water, snow, fall, spring, summer. Every season, every environment, every stage that the story itself sets enhances every part of this film, considering that I, I highly doubt that Pinocchio joins the Italian regime and tries to become a super soldier. I highly doubt that was ever in any of the original texts. Um, but how you put Pinocchio inside of each one of these scenarios, and not only is he able to survive and keep his optimism and his kindness and his joy, and having the opportunity to live that kind of life in spite of it all is definitely something that is incredibly hopeful and uplifting regardless of the environment and regardless of the places that you've been put in. So to, at the end of the day, this movie accomplishes what it sets out to do and more, and I would say if this ends up winning the Oscar, I would have no qualms about it. So it's very tough to think that, is this my universal favorite animated movie that's being put up for an Oscar? Because Pinocchio really puts up a strong fight, and I would totally see it winning. But if you're still going to talk to me about my favorites of the, nom the nominees that have been put forward this year, Puss in Boots The Last Wish is just easily, bar none, the best of the five. What DreamWorks was able to do inside of this production to not to kind of give it like an anime-style Attack on Titan-esque vibe, especially in the beginning fight the film... To also take Puss in Boots' character devoid of nearly everything he is involved with with Shrek and give him a story that is not only his own but about the people around him that give his life meaning and the forces that will try to take that away from him. But thankfully, to a completely acceptable degree, there are multiple antagonists in this movie that try to inhibit our trio and try to either take a wish for their own or try to better themselves through the rest of it or are just bastards for their own, <laughs> just for their own amusement because they just love being bad. There are so many good quote-unquote antagonists and forces that are going through, but the main trio that we have inside of this movie is just no slouch themselves. All of them have their own reasons to do the things that they do. If you're talking about the hopeless and relentless optimism of Pinocchio, then it is crazy the amount of optimism that you can get out of Perito. <laughs> it's, it's, this, this puppy can survive an attempted drowning and still have the opportunity to put a positive spin and say that he's more thankful for the life that he's been given. It's just so... He's he's such a nice addition to the cast. It was definitely one of those things, kind of like Mako and Kill la Kill, where they're relentlessly optimistic, they're hyperactive, they're always like trying to be a part of the main scene, they always try to shove themselves into everybody's business, and it's like, okay... I know, I've, like, I'm looking at it through the trailers and what everybody's saying. It's like, this is going to be an incredibly annoying side character that just has to round out the trio just so we have somebody else to care about. And thankfully, Perito pulls their own weight and more. They have a phenomenal sense of camaraderie and inclusion inside of this trio and what they're able to accomplish. No matter how small and how hopeless this situation may seem, he always figures out a way to put a positive spin on it. Puss in Boots definitely just shines as a way for him to essentially move forward and try to live his best life, regardless of what is given. And, of course, there is going to be no way I cannot talk about this film without involving the wolf. The big bad wolf, the bounty hunter. It's just so 
bone chilling whenever he is on screen whenever you hear that whistle whenever you know there's an opportunity that he is right on puss's tail you feel it you can sense the impending dread all the way down to your bones and the way that he is able to overthrow and just completely and utterly shut down puss not only mentally but physically makes him easily one of the best villains and one of the best antagonists inside of one of the and like inside of any recent anime film or animation film period especially with the amount of time that he's on screen he's probably inside of a movie that runs over just over a half an hour or an hour and a half he's probably on screen for like 10 to 15 minutes and it's just e like everybody in involved around him like even the other antagonists who get more screen time are also phenomenal but just what he's able to do with the little screen time that he is a part of is just nothing short of amazing. Everything revolving around this film, everybody that they were able to bring together at DreamWorks Animation, what they were able to accomplish with this film is going to stand the test of time. And unfortunately, the next Puss in Boots, the, or the next time we're going to see him is probably going to be in another Shrek film. But honestly with the, how he was able to make his mark onside the landscape of animation with just this one in particular, it's going to be something that people are going to be recommending for years to come. And considering that this feels like another film that felt the positive influence of Spider-Verse all those years ago, and seeing how they've been able to evolve and adapt the medium of animation inside of this style and in this kind of story, it gives me nothing but hope and optimism considering how well it was able to be adapted and just how phenomenal of a film itself it actually is. So now the real... Um, actually, before I get to that question, the one major anime film since uh, the R Anime Awards just wrapped up and they were able to go through and give their thoughts on the majority of the pieces inside of anime over the year for their best animated film of the year, public... Of course, no doubt went to Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, considering that was easily the most popular. And I do think that JJK Zero was a like it was a great continuation, leading on to not necessarily leading on to, but at least giving us the background information for a lot of characters and acting as a really good prequel towards the majority of the story that we're going to be seeing. I think in the second season that's going to be coming out this year. I can't remember if it's this year or next year, but besides that, I do think JJK Zero is a good film. The one thing that I'm going to say that I didn't watch, which now, I guess, considering what the jury was able to go through and explain why this deserves to be where it was, is that the jury ended up giving the number one film to the Review Starlight movie. And Review Starlight is interesting considering that it was something that I dropped three or four episodes in. It had a phenomenal first two episodes it got you incredibly invested in the characters in the world and how that kind of review stage crew like moves forward and what kind of work ethic it takes to survive inside of that world but then i only liked the main three and everybody else was just not really engaging enough to keep me invested so i probably only made it to three or four episodes and then i ended up dropping it now that this new film has come out and basically every single category that it was a part of either best music like best musically one of the best animated and now apparently it was the best overall film of last year i'm probably gonna have to give it a watch but if that's the case i guess through the jurors recommendations i'll give it a recommendation as well it would be nice to go through and watch the 12 to 13 episode anime beforehand just to have the opportunity to know exactly who these characters are what trials and what traumas and what conflicts they're going to be bringing forward into the movie even though the movie is just a retelling 
kind of something like uh, Revolutionary Girl Utna and how their film ended up going through and changing up a couple of pieces of the story. Something similar to that. So I'm really curious why the jurors picked this one and why it was such a unanimous favorite to a lot of people, or just to everybody that ended up seeing in the first place. But if you are going to ask me what the best animated film of last year was just outside of all of those, I'm still going to give it to Inuo. Puss in Boots might have been my favorite, and if you had to give it a strong competition, Pinocchio would probably be the best overall film. But even regardless of all of that, Inuo just stands head and shoulders above the rest of anything that ended up coming out last year that I ended up seeing. I mean, even the jury in this case gave it second place uh, to review Starlight leading up to the rest of it. And as long as you go into Inuo expecting the ridiculousness, expecting that it's basically an expecting that it's basically a rock opera that is going to knock your socks off and also teach you a little bit about Japanese history and revisionism as a whole. I would definitely recommend Inuo to anybody who is <laughs> willing to listen because I'm pretty sure every single time I've mentioned Inuo, it has been at the top of my list and regardless of <laughs> regardless of how many times I said it. So just go watch Inuo. I really if I had to choose Inuo should have been uh, on these nominations, uh, uh, like, between over Sea Beast, over Marcel, over Turning Red. Inuo probably should have been at the top of the nominations over any of these. It ended up coming second to Pinocchio at the Golden Globe, so at least there's that, and it got a little bit of recognition. But at the end of the day, I still do believe that even though Puss in Boots is probably my favorite animated film to come out of the West, Inuo is probably my favorite animated film, even through the majority of the great stuff that I've been able to watch and catch up on over the past couple of weeks, and it will keep that mainstay as the king of 2022. So I'm really hoping that you were able to go through and get <laughs> through this episode, even though my voice has been a little scraggly, and I'll try and even it out and make it smoother than normal, just so it doesn't necessarily seem that I was an absolute wreck, and we'll kind of figure out how this is going to go. So... I really don't know how the rest of the award ceremonies are going to go this year, but at this point I don't necessarily care. I would definitely say to take the recommendations that I've got through the end of this episode and do with them as you will. So until then, cheers. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.